This is the story of how a small company founded by a 17-year-old in the backcountry of Sweden grows up to be a global multinational, which in 2017 printed 203 million issues of its catalog compared to 100 million Bibles that year. This is the story of how Ingvan Kamprad, who grew up on a farm called Elmtarid near the village Agunarid, I-K-E-A, built a global powerhouse by discovering the right strategy. I'm Marilyn, the CEO and founder of Cosmic Centaurs, and you're listening to our second episode of the third season of our weekly live video series called Center Stage. It is ingrained in human nature to love a good story. And in my years of experience, learning, education, I have collected a number of stories from companies and leaders who've either succeeded brilliantly or failed tragically, and the lessons from these stories. In our third season, we dive deep into tales of triumph and tragedy, sharing lessons learned from companies and leaders who have faced incredible challenges. Today, we start a voyage with the fascinating story of how Ingvar Kamprad founded and grew IKEA. In the second episode, we're going to discover how he launched IKEA despite of or because of growing up in poverty and scaled it internationally and all it took was a willingness to adapt and making the best of what, what we had at every step of the way. Sometimes, I think, the lesson from this story is that you don't need an elaborate strategy developed by a huge team in a boardroom on slides to succeed. You just have to listen and watch for what is working, fix what isn't, and you have to build an organization that can do that at scale. I first heard the story or the details of the story of IKEA in a class at INSEAD led by the incredible Joe Santos, who's been a guest on all of our cosmic conferences and on center stage in the past. And it is a story that struck me so much. And he is the one who first introduced me to this idea of emerging strategy, of the fact that although it is true, there are many incredible thought leaders, thinkers who have developed great frameworks, and God knows I'm a fan of a good framework, um, to help develop strategies for companies. Sometimes the way that you develop your strategy is by realizing that you are in an emerging world where things are changing and you pick up on those things and you build something on top of it. In the Swedish province of Schmaland, where Ingvar hails from, life was far from easy, right? He grew up in a rocky land, which made it very difficult for crops to thrive, and people had to face daily struggles for their basic necessities, for food, for jobs, for a house, for a roof above their head. And Ingvar's family, like many others in the region, had to get crafty. They had to get creative and resourceful and think outside the box. And so for many of those families, entrepreneurship was a lifeline for survival. Families sold homemade goods, preserved foods. Ingvar's own mother had a guest house that helped to generate additional income. And so from a very young age, he felt a very strong desire to contribute. And at just six years old, he built his first business venture by selling matches. He reached out 
to his aunt in Stockholm and asked her to buy a large and affordable carton of matches, which he would then break up into smaller packages and resell. Later, he realized that farmers that didn't have fishing rights might want some fish, so he got some nets from his father, and using his mom's bicycle, he crossed his region and brought freshly caught fish to a growing customer base. And the idea is that as he took these first steps into the path of entrepreneurial greatness, it was through these small experiences that he learned valuable lessons about adaptability and seizing opportunities. And it laid the foundation of what would later become IKEA. When he graduated in 1943, obviously there was no hesitation as to what Ingvar would be or become because he was already an entrepreneur. And his father paid the registration fee for his business, IKEA, which some of you will be surprised to know in its early days did not sell furniture at all, but instead sold items like pens or picture frames or watches. Um, and actually what happened is that after World War II, Sweden, like perhaps many other places, witnessed a really high demand for furniture. And Ingvar, coming from the background that he did, realized that there was no opportunity they couldn't be the market didn't provide affordable functional well-designed furniture and he truly felt like everybody deserved access to that and so he developed a brochure and he put in a few pieces of furniture and mailed it to people and people could place orders from afar and on that brochure he said if you guys show reasonable interest I shall provide more in many ways, that's a great MVP. Just send the brochure and see if people will show up for it. So having sold enough furniture that he could then go to the furniture trade in Stockholm, uh, Ingvar then you know, proceeded to start showcasing and selling his furniture in those fairs. And he was so successful that immediately... The furniture cartel, so all the other furniture makers who were making old, traditional, bulky, the kind of furniture that would survive three generations unscathed, they were very upset about it. And so they lobbied and they got the fair organizers to forbid them, forbid IKEA from selling directly to customers during the fairs. So then Ingvar went, sure, no problem. He started accepting orders instead. Again, the cartel was unhappy. Again, they lobbied. And then that practice was banned. So instead, Ingvar told his team, no worries, just write everybody's names down and we'll reach out after the fair. After that, they lobbied once more and IKEA was forbidden from showing their prices. And so Ingvar, every step of the way, just adapted. He just saw something didn't work or was getting in his way and he figured it out. In fact, the furniture cartel went as far as lobbying with manufacturers and telling them that if they continued to produce for IKEA, they themselves would stop ordering from them, which led them to tell Ingvar that they just couldn't serve him anymore. So he went and found other furniture makers in Sweden and Poland, and it turned out that it was there was an unexpected benefit. His costs actually decreased because they were cheaper than the ones he was using before. Um, and in some ways, you know, there's a there's a letter from one of these um, retailers, his competition, where they compared IKEA to the Hydra, where every time you cut off one of its head, another would reemerge. A few years later, in 1965, IKEA opened its first store in Stockholm. 
And so this was the beginning of the story of IKEA beyond the early MVP days. The store was massive. It was inspired by New York's Guggenheim Museum. And it was so successful that people lined up outside and there was barely enough staff to serve everybody. And so one of the managers had a crazy idea that perhaps they could open the warehouse part of the store and let people just serve themselves. And that's how the concept of picking up your own furniture was born. In fact, so many of the concepts that we now know to be staples of the IKEA store were born during that period. For example, with the self-service concept, there was also the distribution of informative catalogs, which for decades remained IKEA's primary source of marketing. These catalogs allowed you to make your mind up about what you wanted to buy so that by the time you got to the store, you already knew where you were headed. This is also the time where they started adding explanatory tickets so that people could really have full independence while navigating the store. It's when they started you know, noticing that they could store their items better in flat pack boxes and it would give them more space and allow them to display more furniture and reduce their costs. It's when they started thinking that, well, we are in an environment that is car-centric and becoming more and more car-centric, so we will have suburban stores. They will be far. They will be attainable by car. They'll have big parking lots and people will be able to come in and just pay and take their furniture, which at the time was more revolutionary than you'd think. And it was by simply observing what was happening around them, looking at the demand and adapting incredibly fast that IKEA was able to do that. And that is why you can call it an emerging strategy. IKEA continued to grow, of course. It opened stores in Norway, Denmark, and then obviously in the rest of Europe. In Germany, by this, you know, in the 60s, it had 50% market share of all cash and carry segment. It went to Japan, Australia, Canada, and it was such a popular value proposition that people would line up to go to the stores. And the reason why it was such a good value proposition is because Ingvar was driven by a vision larger than the idea of simply selling furniture. He was there to create a better everyday life for the majority of people. He sided by the many. And that's why this growth went beyond what a furniture store could manage because it was a vision for people's lives. Now, Ingvar was, of course, coming from his background, his journey as an entrepreneur, and his very frugal life. Um, he was an incredibly visionary leader, but he was also incredibly detail-oriented in the operations. For example, he was known to be able to recall the specific details of every single item in their catalog, their sourcing, their name, their cost, their price. And his interest in operations wasn't just focused on the objects, the furniture, the stores. It was focused in as much effort on his staff. You know, when Ingvar visited a store, he'd make it a point to personally meet and shake hands with every single one of his employees. He invited them to stay after work for dinner. And, you know, inevitably most of them did. And they would have an Ikea style buffet dinner. Employees went first then managers, and him last. And after dinner, once more, he would shake hands, talk with everybody present, and leave the store past midnight, only to return the next morning before everybody else was there. And in that sense, Ingvar was really trying to live out his own values, 
but also represent the values that he wanted the IKEA spirit to portray. Enthusiasm, relentless drive for innovation, a mindful appro approach to cost, but also humility, understanding that there will be challenges and trying to react to these challenges in simple, innovative, and responsible ways while continuing to side with the many. There were a few interesting organizational culture quirks in the company. For example, uh, in across offices, people said tu instead of vous, which is, you know, the singular way of referring to someone instead of the polite way to do it, which doesn't apply in English because it's you in both cases, but in Swedish, in French, it would. They had a week called the anti-bureaucrat week where all managers had to be front frontliners in the store. This idea of frugality and cost consciousness was present everywhere. And he was famous to have said that expensive solutions are a sign of mediocrity. And creativity, but also failure, were both incredibly rewarded in IKEA. So much so that every manager in every store had its own series of innovative practices. And, you know, this is how things like the IKEA restaurant, the children's area, all of these things came from individual innovations inside the stores. And as the organization continued to scale and grow, Ingvar needed a way to make sure that everybody would be living out these values, that everybody would maintain the focus on the vision of, and the purpose of the organization, but also the spirit, the approach, the qualities of what makes someone a great IKEA employee and contributor. And so Ingvar wrote a little booklet called The Testament of a Furniture Dealer. And you know, these days, we've all heard about, for example, the Netflix employee handbook, Zappos, you know, was famous for this too. And we know that many of the large, successful, scaled, sustainable organizations have a version of this. But remember, he wrote this in the 70s. So to me, that's really one of the earliest representations of a founder-led business that realizes that living beyond the founder is going to mean codifying all of this and writing everything down. And not only did he write everything down in his Testament of a Furniture Dealer, which we'll share with you in the, in the comments and the show notes, but he also made it everybody's job to be an ambassador of those values. In fact, there were 300 IKEA ambassadors whose role was to spread the company's philosophy and values by educating the people that worked with them, and acting as role models. They all were enrolled in culture programs that Comprad presented personally, and then they were trained to spread the message. Which, if you understand in a company like IKEA that is truly focused on delivering furniture at the most accessible price, anything that increases cost is something they're going to look at profoundly and they're going to weigh the advantages of spending on this problem versus not. So if you're going to dedicate 300 people to be trained and to become these ambassadors in a company like IKEA, there has to be a profound belief that this, in fact, is going to improve your ability to deliver on your vision and not just be some expensive, cute cultural program. And the testament of a furniture dealer is split, let's say, between his principles And a few words that he likes to associate with IKEA and the way that he wants people to behave there. 
I think one of his most interesting and compelling principles is about the product range being their identity. And I think, again, it's because coming from his background, understanding the struggles of people who are not, you know, middle upper class or bourgeois or have access to resources, he understood that IKEA actually had a way of transforming people's lives profoundly through its product range. And the idea of being obsessive about maintaining costs at a place that made it accessible to all was something that was so deeply ingrained in who he was and how he approached the world. And it is one of the principles that I think is really interesting because it's a principle that is customer facing, that is concerned with what is the best way that we can impact the world in a positive way. And he takes the time to ingrain it deeply into the principles of the organization because that relationship between the customers and the employees and the employees being the guardians of what we bring and our added value and our promise to our customers is so important. And at the same time, of course, he promotes spirits of frugality, of simplicity, of innovation, of creativity, of responsibility as being a source of privilege. And he writes of the qualities of an IKEA employee. Here are some of them. Humbleness, willpower, simplicity, making do, experience, never saying never, doing it in a different way, never being afraid of making mistakes, and so many more. And of course, there's a lot that happened between the time that Ingvar wrote, um, you know, his testament and today. But that there is something that has never changed, which is that IKEA has the same strategic philosophy to create a better everyday life for the many people. And the vision for how this company brings this to life may evolve and change with the times, but the purpose never does. Ingvar never stopped being innovative in the most practical ways. And he never stopped pushing his organization to deliver using the values that he held so dearly. And you see, there was no big boardroom, no slides, no sitting around with very smart people trying to figure out what the future of the company is. Although for sure that came, came up at some point. But the entire business and its sustainability was actually built around very simple, basic, common sense, one would say, principles, which is to understand and listen how the world around you is changing and then to adapt and react very quickly without fear of consequence, or at least with a high sense of both responsibility and innovation. And that is the reason why IKEA is still thriving today more than 400 stores, more than 30 countries, they have been able to maintain that spirit and to continue delivering high-quality life experiences for the many. And at Cosmic Centers, we often help leaders to think about not what their business goals are, not what their strategy is, but what their purpose is, because that is the only true way to create a sustainable organization. I hope you enjoyed this story. Thank you for tuning in and engaging and listening and hopefully being inspired. This video, of course, will be available on our pages, YouTube and website. I'm Marilyn Zahur, and you are listening to Center Stage Season 3. If you need help with your business or organizational strategy or finding inspiration to put words to your purpose, give us a call. The centers and I would love to help you. Next week, we'll be talking about a story not of a triumph, but that of a tragedy.
we'll be talking about Kodak and how, despite the fact that they were indeed the ones to invent the digital camera, it ended up being the cause of their demise.